Jesus says in John chapter 4 that God is seeking worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. Thank you for being here this morning to worship God together with His people, together with all the crickets and chirping, softly chirping things around us. Thank you for being here to worship God. What does it mean to be a worshiper? It means that you have finally seen what God sees, the truth, right? You've seen who is uh, the source of all that is good. And you now are living your life to seek Him. God is seeking people who will seek Him. In Amos chapter 5, if you look with me here, at Amos chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. Amos chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't enter into Gilgal. Don't cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall go into exile. Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. He says this again in verse 14. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The Lord is saying here, seek me. And he's saying, seek me and live because he is seeking worshipers. When the Lord says, seek me, that's him looking for us. God desires us and he wants us to live. Seek me and live. Is God seeking us to give us life? God desires us and wants to give us life. I mean, that's, that's why we're gathered here on this day under this tent. It's because God sent Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost and to give us that which is life indeed. That is God's heart. If you've ever ever had the good fortune of having a child ask you to play hide and seek, it's a sweet request, isn't it? It's kind of obnoxious after a certain age. You've got to like get down and crunch up for an undetermined amount of time. Have you ever like been in a hiding place and then started making noises because you're like, okay, my, my hip's acting up and I need, to, I need to get found here quick. <laughs> but it's a sweet thing, right? The child doesn't say, I want, you, I want you to find me. I want to play hide and seek because I hope you never find me. Right? That's not what the child's saying. The child's saying, I want you to play hide and seek with me. I want you to come find me. I want you to come after me. I want your attention to be devoted to me, and I want you to find your joy in me. That's what the child's saying. I, the child is saying, I want you. So come seek me. I want you, so come seek me. Seek me. When God says, seek me, He's saying, I want you, friends, and I want to have fun with you. I want to give you life. Seek me and live, in the words of Amos. Seek me and live. This is God's heart. I want you to remember, as we, as we touch on the minor prophets, with their sometimes um, challenging messages of judgment and punishment and anger, I want you to remember that the book of Amos was given to God's people in order so that God might not bring destruction upon Israel. He was trying to forestall that judgment. He was trying to prevent it. God's plan was for His goodness and, and grace and glory to fill Israel so full that it overflowed from them to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory. I'm reminded of that passage in, in Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. 
Yeah, the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, I want you to reflect on, on the love of God in Christ so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like God's heart has always been for His people to be overwhelmed with His goodness and grace and glory. This has always been God's heart. God wants to be sought and found. He wants to forgive and save. He wants to see His people live and live well. Why are we here this morning? We want to live and live well. But how can we live and live well? Can we do it on our own? Can we go our own way and do our own thing? Right. This is really the collection of people who've tried it and haven't loved it. We went our own way. We tried our own thing. How can we live well apart from God? You know, the, the Bible is premised off of what most people, uh, an idea most people have that is a serious misconception, which is that there can be found anything good in life separate from God. There's nothing good in life apart from God. Whatever else we seek instead of God, whatever else we turn to instead of relying on God, that thing has the seeds of our sorrow and destruction already in it. Just this last weekend, we, uh, we ordered municipal mulch at our house. You know, the free stuff that they chop up from all the things that everybody in the communities put out at the road, you know? And that mulch has the seeds within it of the weeds that are going to fill our yard <laughs> in the not-too-distant future, right? That's life without God. That's our decisions without God, is municipal mulch. That's what the world is. The seeds of your weeds that you will never be able to eradicate are there in that gift dumped on your front lawn. This is why God is writing the prophets. This is why he is threatening. Because he understands what life apart from him is. This is why God is promising punishment. Why he delivers judgment. Because he knows that life, and track this concept with me for a moment, life is only going to come from the God who gives all life. Good life is only going to come from the God who gives all life. Right? Where, where's the energy for the grass and the sun and, and our hearts? Where, good decisions, recovery from bad decisions, where does that energy and life come from? It comes from the Creator God, all of it, from Him alone. And everything that we do without Him is just a down payment on future pain and chaos. Now we, we have gotten in the habit of ignoring this, most of us, most of the time. But God doesn't ignore it. He sees it. God sees all things, get this, He sees all things all the time. Look with me at Amos chapter 5, verse 8. He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. He calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord, the God who is, is His name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Amos is saying He's there all the time, day and night. He sees it all. He's over all of it. Keep going. Verse 10. They, 
hate him who reproves in the gate. I think Amos is talking about himself. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. God sees all things all the time. He sees what affluence does to the souls of the rich as well as to the souls of the poor. I was just reading an article this, this week and listening to a conversation on a podcast that was uh, similar themes. Where they, they talk about the, uh, the um, disintegration of our social fabric. I mean, that's kind of a high-sounding high way to talk about uh, the fact that like, people don't you know, uh, call you back right away or you, know, uh, you get a t- more spam emails than you do from friends. Like, there's just, we're, we're disintegrating. Right? We, were, we were once more integrated and now we are disintegrating. We're getting more tribalized, more polarized, uh, loneliness, depression, all of the marks of, of loneliness are on the rise. And where did all that come from? And, and these guys were tracing it back to, well, uh, all of our, our radical individualism. You've probably heard this expression before. that we Individualism just means I get to do what I want. Now, what does the... Poor people don't get to do what they want. Who gets to do what they want? But people with rising levels of affluence and agency. Right? It was, it was our disintegration, what we're experiencing, from seeds sown way back in our affluence. So God sees what affluence does to the rich and to the poor. He sees what hypocrisy does among His people to those, to those who claim to be His people. But He also sees the effects of hypocrisy by those who see us. God sees what injustice does to the victim, but He also sees what effect injustice has to the abuser or to those who know about it and tolerate it. He sees all of these things. He sees all of them, and He doesn't like them. He doesn't want them to be. And so God promises sorrow. You see in verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord... In all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. You may remember that in chapter 5, verse 1. If you look there, Hear this word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. God's lamentation now in verse 16 becomes our lamentation. God's sorrow becomes our sorrow. Because either they're going to listen to God, they're going to listen to Amos, and they're going to seek the Lord, they're going to repent and seek the Lord, or they're going to get the sorrows that come from when judgment comes. And so you look in verse 17, it says, In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. God is coming to His people, and what will He find? Will He find people seeking Him? Or will he find more of the same? You know, we, we talk about revival sometimes in the church. You know what the word revival means? It comes uh, from like, uh, you probably, uh, vive, 
uh, vive la revolution, you know, you probably, right? we, we, it comes from the root of live, live again, revive. And we want revival. We want new life. We want revival for, for ourselves and our homes, for our, our churches, for our friends, for our communities, our country. We want revival. But you know what? Revival is never commanded in Scripture. You know what's commanded is repentance. And revival comes, God brings new life to people who have repented, have turned from what they're connected to and attached themselves to Him. And life flows through that attachment. Revival always flows through repentance, and this is what God is calling Israel to here. You know, again, God's goal, what is God's goal? It's so important that we appreciate together what is God's goal. I mean, so many of us can, can worry that God's main goal is to kind of... Uh, make us miserable or frustrate us or disappoint us. But His goal is to join our hearts with His and to join our lives with His. Hey, listen to this. Look at this. This is really interesting. Look at again, Amos chapter 5, verse 14. I'm going to read two verses here, and I want you to tell me what, what scene they evoke in your mind. Think of, think of somewhere else in the Bible that these verses kind of put you in mind of. In verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. When was there a time, when is there a place, a moment when God was with his people in sweetness? Now look at verse 24. Where God says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. When was there a time and place when God was with His people and justice and righteousness rolled down like an ever-flowing stream, what does that evoke in your mind? Doesn't it sound like the Garden of Eden, maybe? Or, or it sounds like heaven? That's what God is trying to offer us. He's trying to bring us back into heaven, into Himself. When the apostles describe what Jesus came to bring us into, in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter says, we wait for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what Amos is calling Israel to. Make Israel a place where righteousness dwells. This is what God is inviting us into. And of course, at the very, very end of the book, you may remember this description of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. Listen to this. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's Amos talk, right? He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's going to be a place where justice rolls like an ever-flowing stream. And nobody's going to be hurt, and nobody's going to be oppressed, and nobody's going to experience the effect of their sin or other people's sins in that place, because God is going to be there with them. And that's what Amos 5 is inviting Israel back into. Heaven in God Himself. Well, I think if we all had a punch card right now for like heaven or not heaven, like what do you want this week? We'd all want heaven, right? We want that picture. So what is preventing Israel from seeking the Lord and coming back into that condition? 
That's a really interesting question. What is preventing them from seeking the Lord and living? Seek me and live. What's preventing this? Look with me again, Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? You hear what he's saying? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you think the day of the Lord is something you should be praying for and hoping for and excited about? So they have an idea of the day of the Lord that is getting in the way of their seeking the Lord. In other words, they have a theology, an idea about God and His ways that is in the way of them actually seeking God. Let's look at this a little bit more. So he says, verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? He instructs them on what it is. It's darkness and not light. It's as if a man runs away from a lion and then a bear meets him. He escapes those, gets into his house, leans his hand on a wall, and a snake bites him. Is not the day of the Lord going to be darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And notice he goes right into, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. He's talking about their worship. They're gathering in a tent outside on a Sunday morning, Saturday morning. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, they've got this idea of the day of the Lord. They've got this theology that tells them that what they're doing is what God wants. They're doing the offerings, right? They're playing the stringed harp and and making noise in God's honor. And he's saying, I hate it. You think you're doing what I want. It's not what I want. They think they're doing what God wants. And so, notice this. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. What do you think God is doing in your life when you feel at ease and secure? You know, when you just got a bonus at work or something you were hoping for for just came through you went to the doctor for this but it ended up it was just this and you feel secure and you feel at ease and what do we say we say oh god is he's he's showing me favor right now god's blessing me now they're at ease they're secure they're not under the blessing of god it's woe upon them this is a real challenge we're going to sit in this challenge for a minute here this morning they keep going in verse two he says Now we'll skip verse 2, sorry. Go to verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they who were the first in Israel, you may remember, will be the first to go into exile. You know, they found that ivory that they would put on their beds. They found that, like archaeologists did. That when You see that the, those who lie on beds of ivory, they found that ivory. 
with uh, Hebrew words and stuff on it. You know where they found it? 750 miles to the north in Nimrud, the city of the Persian Empire. But this is complicated. It, it, join with me in the complicated feelings of the people to whom Amos is writing. Because I'll tell you what, when I've got a bowl of wine and I've just uh, bathed myself in oil and I'm reclining on uh, you know, my couch and strumming my stringed instruments and, and composing songs, I feel like God is looking at me with favor. Don't you? When you're in the hammock finally and the sweating glass of lemonade beside you, you feel like, ah, God is good. And so the situation that they're in is they think they're doing what God wants because they're worshiping Him on Sabbath. And so they think that what they're getting is His blessing in response to their doing what He wants. They think they're doing what He wants. And so they think they're getting blessings from God. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 14, I just want to point out one expression we already read here. But he says, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, or as the NIV translates it, just as you say He is. The people of Israel are saying, God is with us. Look, look at my bowls of wine and my well-oiled skin. Like, look at the blessings and favor of God obvious upon me because I go to church on Sunday. They have a theology, they have an idea of God and His ways that is preventing them from seeking God. They have an idea of God that is telling them that they've found God. They've found Him. And so they don't need to seek Him. If you ask them, where is God? They would say, well, He's with us. Take a look, man. Hashtag blessed. Come on. Have you scrolled through my Instagram lately? Like, God is here. Am I right? Don't let your theology protect you from what we've already laid out is, is God's love and His heart for us. That's what's happening here. They've got a critical problem. They've got an understanding of the relationship of affluence and God that is really at the core of their struggles and, and the, the problems that God, is through Amos, condemning. You know, Hebrews, all the way back in the New Testament, a couple hundred years later, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.6 that those who come to God, those who seek God, must believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But they're saying, they're saying rewards. Yo, we got them. And we're good. God has blessed us. God is here. We have His favor. And I know that this is, this is a struggle for us. This is a struggle for me. What is, uh, what is the meaning of affluence? What is the meaning of suffering? What is the, well, the first thing out of your heart's mouth when something bad happens to you? You say, why? What did I do? What does it mean, God? And when you see somebody else thriving or succeeding or gaining things that you desire and that you pray for and you see that, you say, why? Why are they getting the blessing? Why am I getting the suffering? I don't understand. I mean, we live in a culture where riches, power, the size of your operation, your sense of influence means God is happy with you and you are blessed. What is the correlation between affluence and the favor of God? It's so hard because we are narrative-making machines. 
We always want why. Oh, this sermon's not about this, but let me just briefly just point to some of the things that Scripture teaches clearly on, on the nature, the relationship of, of affluence, success, good things happening. Right? The truth is that poverty can erode faith, and so can affluence. The truth is that if you have your daily bread, you've been provided for, or even if you have plenty, that's a grace that we should be thankful to God for. But at the same time, when we're in afflictions, when we're in seasons of want, we get to meet and know the comforts and kindness of God in a different way. The truth is that riches can produce and be used for rich good works, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. But he also says in that same chapter, it can produce great pains for those who seek them. We know that poverty can produce great faith because you need God. It can also produce great despair. The teaching of God of the scripture on this subject is not simple, it's complicated. But the world reduces it to a very simple algorithm. If you are experiencing success, you are blessed. If you are getting the things that you want, free municipal mulch all day long, you must be getting blessed. And the world celebrates that. Right? The, the, the top 100 churches magazine doesn't feature churches meeting in under tents in rural communities on a Sunday morning, right? Or whatever your industry or whatever your goal. It, you're not being featured if you're not big, powerful, wealthy. That's what they celebrate. That's what they value. And that leaks in. That, that functions like, for the people of Israel, for us, like noise-canceling headphones to the message of God's love to his invitation to heaven and to himself. The world gives us these noise-canceling headphones of the message of success is blessed. Success is blessed. Blessed is success. So how do we stay sensitive to hear God's call? How do we stay on this path? How do we stay sensitive to hear the voice of God? Well, this is the point of the sermon where if you're saying Jesus, you got it right. The answer now is Jesus. Jesus, of course, is going to keep us on the path. He's our shepherd. He's our master. How do we keep our theology, our idea of God, from preventing us from seeking God? We need to have our theology and our idea of God always corrected and brought back to Jesus. John, the Apostle John, towards the end of the New Testament era, he says in John 1.18, Nobody's ever seen God at any time, but the one and only who is from the Father's own heart, He has explained Him to us. Jesus explains God to us. In the epistle that John the Apostle writes a little while later, he says this at the very end. These are the last two verses of 1 John. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we're in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. And little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jesus gives us understanding and keeps us from the wrong idea of God. All our ideas of God, all our ideas of the good life, must touch Jesus. If you're taking notes, right? 
must touch Jesus. One of my favorite, one of my fundamental uh, quotes from C.S. Lewis, he says that every idea of God, he must in mercy shatter. Every idea of God we form, he must in mercy shatter. That's what Amos is doing. He's saying you have an idea of God that is preventing you from seeking him because you think you already got him and you got what you need from him. He says, we gotta re we gotta rethink this, guys. All our ideas of God must touch Jesus. And that was true in the Old Testament too, right? They had the word of God, they had the worship of God that was centered on the temple, on the altar, on the Lamb. That's the truth of God right there. Is the Lamb and the altar and the temple. They had this. But Jesus we have so much clearer, and Jesus is our filter, and Jesus keeps us when we drift. So just a couple things to think about here. Maybe do a little reflection. You know, Jesus, because of this function He has for us and our ideas of God, He is always calling us to repent so that we may be revived. To repent means to turn away from what you're attached to, to God. And when you reattach to God, you are revived. Jesus is calling us to repent that we may be revived. Every idea of who God is must come through Jesus. You know, when you think about the situation in Amos, no one with Jesus as their God can think that God is with the powerful and wealthy. Because in the story of Jesus, we see that those are the people who always oppose Jesus. Nobody can look at those who are uh, in poverty or suffering or pain or even in dying and think that God is absent from them because that's kind of the story of Jesus' whole life. Poor, suffering, pain, death. In John chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you rich, powerful people in control of our society, he says, you neither know me nor you, my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus has to correct and filter our idea of who God is. I'm having uh, the privilege of doing a little premarital counseling for some folks in the church. I know Brian and Christine are doing some as well. Uh, those of you who are married, did your spouse in your marriage, has everything kind of gone as expected? <laughs> right? Like you have an idea of what your spouse is like. You have an idea of what married life is going to be like. Has it, for anybody, has that not changed? Right, no adjustments is like, no, yeah, this is exactly what I thought everything was going to be. You know, we all go into that marriage relationship with some, I mean, to be honest, some sort of poorly defined positive outcome. Happiness, maybe too simplistic. Joy, certainly probably too exalted. But something nice, we thought, right? So if we want that, that goal... What you've experienced, married couples, is that you're going to have to constantly be reviewing and adjusting your idea of your spouse and of your life together. Right? We change. We grow. Things happen. I'm reminded of a, a writer who says, uh, My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each one has been me. <laughs> Unfortunately, 
our ideas of each other tend to, and our idea of God tends to stay in a place when it was last useful. But then we shift, or of course God has more to offer. And so we need to review and adjust. And Jesus is that, He is that review, He is that adjustment. Every idea of God, every idea of the Christian life. What do we expect from the Christian life? A couple years ago I was in counseling and the counselor asked the question about this subject, about this issue. He said, so when was Jesus successful? When did he get what it is, whatever it is that you think you should be expecting? When did he get it? He said, you want, there's an old, uh, old saw among preachers, like if you want a ministry like Jesus, expect one where all your friends betray you, you know, one of your closest uh, friends tries to murder you, you end up dying, and none of the people that, were, that you were trying to teach your whole ministry ever understood anything you said until after you were dead. That's like the, what we see in the Gospels with the Apostles. Is the story of Jesus, friends, is it a, is it a story of upward mobility that looks like an Algier Hess kind of early 20th century novel, just bootstraps, rags to riches? Is that Jesus' story? When did Jesus look like he was living the hashtag blessed life? His Instagram was terrible. And not only must every idea of God touch Jesus, every idea of the Christian life must touch Jesus, also every idea of right and wrong must come to us through Jesus. And this is really what Israel's failure was. There was this disconnect in Israel between their worship, between the songs that they're singing and the sermons that they're amening, and their lives. There was no impact on their lives of the truths they were learning. They were greedy. They were insulating themselves from harm. They were devoted to pleasing themselves with no concern for injustice, no concern for righteousness being done. And friends, that was their failure and their faults, but I'll tell you, I don't think there's ever been a time in human history or a place where it's been easier to do that same thing. To live for greed, to live for self-pleasing, to live insulating ourselves from injustice. So Jesus must touch all our ideas. Jesus changes everything. And He must touch all of our ideas, all of our views, all of our opinions. Jesus must touch and change. You know, the problem isn't that we are scared. The problem isn't even that we're greedy. The problem isn't that we're self-interested. That's just being human, right? The problem is when we take those things and we baptize them and we say, this, this is what God wants. This is, this is okay to be afraid and self-interested and greedy and not care for justice. It's okay. In fact, it's actually right and good. That's the problem. When we baptize our theology, but it never touches Jesus. Friends, God desires us. He wants to give us life. God is seeking worshipers. And Jesus is the way to protect our theology and to keep us connected to God and to His love. Now, we know this about Jesus. It's one of the things we love about Jesus. Jesus makes everyone feel loved and no one feel comfortable. 
He's too holy on the one hand. He's too kind. He's not going to let us use that mulch for our garden if he can help it, right? You want to put it by the chicken coop, that's fine. But... Jesus must change everything, including our ideas of God, our ideas of what it means to be blessed and to live a good life. And so let me just invite you as we close, what ideas, what views, what positions, what opinions are you committed to that are actually in the way of your commitment to Christ? Ideas, views, opinions, positions that you're committed to that are in the way of your commitment, the greater commitment to Jesus Christ. Or what are ideas of life or of living or of good that are actually in the way of the life that He alone has and that He is inviting us into? Jesus must change everything, including our ideas. So let's pray and ask Him to help us see what that means for us. Heavenly Father, we gather before You today as those who are seeking You, we're here to worship you. We're here to be called into yourself, into your kingdom, into, into heaven now in the life of the Spirit. And yet we are also here confessing that we are those who drift. We are those who need Jesus to call us back and who need the vision of Jesus and who you are revealed in him to bring us back to the source of life. We are here admitting we need to repent that we may be revived. Lord, all of us have things in our life that need new life, that need revival. And so, Holy Spirit, would you direct us to the repentance that you are calling us to today? Ideas, opinions, views that have insulated us from your heart that are keeping us away from the goodness, grace, and glory that you want to fill our lives with for your sake and for the sake of this world. So Spirit, as we, as we close this morning, would you clarify and amplify those places of distress in our hearts? And would you clean them up? Would you bring them to Jesus? And Jesus, we entrust ourselves now to you to do your work in us. We ask your blessing on this word. In Jesus' name, amen.